I am so excited to be with all of you in our Heritage Network as we step into Holy Week. And as we look at the passion of Jesus through the eyes of Peter, I wanna welcome our family at our Bettendorf campus at Kiwani and those who are joining us online. Last week, Pastor Jeremiah kicked off our unexpected series by looking at John and the disciples and their interaction with Jesus and how Jesus was constantly having to recalibrate them to his kingdom and what he was really doing here. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go to heritageqc.com and click on the media tab to get caught up into where we are in our journey. But today we're gonna be looking at Peter. It's important to understand a bit about who Peter was and the history of his unexpected encounters with Jesus. Prior to meeting Jesus, I think Peter's life was pretty mundane. I don't think he cultivated an expectant spirit at all. You see, he was a fisherman from Galilee, as his father was before him, as likely his father was before him, Peter and his brother both were in the trade of being a fisherman. They no doubt never expected to leave Galilee. But you know, God was doing something in Peter's heart even before Jesus came on the scene, because you see, there was this crazy guy named John the Baptist who was going around the countryside and was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And Peter was actually a follower of John the Baptist. Peter was even there when John the Baptist baptized Jesus and he heard the voice of God say over Jesus, this is my son whom I love in whom I am well pleased. And he would go on to have an encounter with Jesus shortly after that, that would change his life forever, that would set him on an unexpected trajectory in his life's journey. You see, Jesus shortly after that began his public ministry and he went into Galilee and he showed up where Peter was in Galilee and he called Peter out from Galilee and said, Peter, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. There's a few more interesting facts that you need to know about Peter that kind of help us understand his relationship with Jesus and how it was unique and kind of different from, from some of the other disciples. Here's one, Peter and Jesus were about the same age. That means Peter was in his early 30s when he and Jesus were journeying together. If you've seen a movie about the disciples lately or looked at any of the artwork, for some reason, it always seems like Peter is about 20 years older than everybody else in the group. And that's not the case. He and Jesus were about the same age, but people might think he was older because Peter was sort of the leader of the disciples and he was the de facto spokesperson for them in many situations, some for the better and some for the worse, as we'll come to see. Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle along with James and John. Peter was passionate and devoted and protective of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I relate to Peter probably more than any of the other disciples. Peter's flaws were evident. He was not perfect, but he followed hard after Jesus, so hard sometimes that he stumbled over himself in his pursuit of who Jesus was. 
I think one of the things Peter struggled with was his expectations of Jesus. And he was constantly trying to understand and, and, and actually thought maybe his expectations of Jesus were more like what ought to be happening. And so he lived in that tension quite a bit in his interaction with Jesus. And, you know, expectations are a tricky thing. They can set us up for highs or lows. They can build anticipation, but also provide opportunities for disappointment. They shape our experiences for the good and the bad. They position us for hope of what can be, but also for fear of what might be. Expectations can limit us or they can free our imaginations for what the future might hold. And I wonder as you come into this place, as you listen to this message, what are you living in expectation of? It could be something awesome or it could be something you're dreading. As you look at work, relationships, family, what are you living in expectation of? As we enter into Holy Week, and as we march towards Good Friday, where we pause and we stand before the cross, and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and then we quickly move into Easter and celebrate the power of the resurrection, what are you living in expectation of? And maybe most importantly, what are your expectations of Jesus? This is your first fill-in if you're following along in your note guide, and I encourage you to do that. The scriptures that we're using are going to be in your note guide as well. You see, how we answer this question, what are our expectations of Jesus, can help us understand and sort of evaluate what our relationship with Jesus is like. You know, when I first became a Christian, honestly, I had an expectation of Jesus that my life was going to be easier because I was a Christian now. And so if you remember the Staples easy button, I thought, I'm a Christian, and so this is how this works. Things get tough, I hit the easy button, because I'm a Christian now, and life gets easier. And, and that was an expectation that I had, and guess what? I got disappointed. Because that wasn't always the case. Sometimes following Jesus actually makes life harder, more difficult a little bit more challenging. And it wasn't until I set that expectation aside and said, you know what? I'm not gonna live in that expectancy. Here's my new expectancy. Life with Jesus is not gonna be easier, but by golly, it's gonna be better. That my relationship with Jesus began to get better. It began to grow in, in, in the power of the relationship that I had with Jesus. And so, this is a really important question for us to understand. What are our expectations of Jesus? You know, in Jesus' ministry with the disciples, he was constantly telling them about what he was doing in the now, what was coming in the next, what he was pointing them towards. Three times he told them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. But don't worry. I'm going to rise again. The Holy Spirit's going to come. You want the Holy Spirit to come because when I leave and the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to do even greater things. Like Jesus was constantly telling the disciples, this is what to expect. And in spite of all of his words, the disciples and the people who walked with Jesus still had unrealistic and inaccurate expectations of Jesus' time on earth. 
We're going to pick up some of Jesus' interaction with his disciples. Pastor Jeremiah kind of unpacked it to the point of the Last Supper where Jesus is interacting with John. And he answers some questions the disciples have. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. And I encourage you to turn there in your Bible or your device. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus has interacted with his disciples. He has pointed out that Judas, one of his disciples who is in the room, he's given him the piece of bread. He's pointed out that Judas is going to betray him, and he releases Judas to go and be about the work of betraying him, even that very night. And so again, Jesus is really clear about what's happening with everybody who's in the room. Jesus has one more important interaction before the disciples are going to leave, and they're going to head out with Jesus into the garden, and it's with Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says this. He says, Simon, Simon. And I think this is important because you see, Simon was Peter's given name. And I think Peter struggled, even though Jesus had said, I give you a new name. You are Peter the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter was in a constant tension with the old man, with the flesh, which I think is the Simon piece of him. And, and really living into the Peter that Jesus called him. Peter wanted that more than anything. But he struggled. And so in this moment, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and even to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. I can only imagine that Peter was aghast and thought there is no way that this could ever happen to me. I know that I know that I know that I would die for Jesus. There is no way that I would deny him. Henrietta Mears has this great quote about Peter's fervency, and she says this, We would die at the stake, but deny Christ in our speech. Because here's the thing. Sometimes what we would die for, that's kind of like a once-for-all decision. And we wrestle with that, and they're like, okay, I would die for that. But where we struggle, it, it's in the living. It's, it's in the living that out. And we see that Peter really exemplifies this as we, as we turn and we go more into the story. So Jesus... Jesus gathers his disciples after that moment, and he's like, okay, guys, we need to go pray, because what's going to happen, what's coming is awful, and we need to go, all go pray together. And so they, it says they got up, and they went, as usual, to the place where they would pray, which was the Garden of Gethsemane located in the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. About three years ago, almost to the day, Sean and I had the opportunity to travel with about 50 of our heritage family to the Holy Lands. And if you ever get the opportunity to do that, I would encourage you to do that. I have not looked at the Easter story in the same way since. So they would have left the upper room area, which would be over in Jerusalem, and walked down through the Kidron Valley and up a steep incline 
up into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is full of olive trees just like this, hundreds and hundreds of years old, gnarly trees that have been there for hundreds of years with, with boulders and other, other uh, just rugged terrain around them. If they turned around from the garden and looked out, they would be able to see Jerusalem. And this is where it's recorded that Jesus, he stood on the Mount of Olives and he looked over Jerusalem and he prayed for Jerusalem. So Jesus comes here to pray and he says to his disciples, disciples, guys, you need to pray and ask for courage and faith to stand against the temptation that's coming. So, so you guys pray and I'm going to go over here and pray. And this is where it records Jesus prayed so intensely that beads of blood like sweat accumulated on his forehead as he asked for the cup to pass from him. Jesus is in the throes of praying and he hears that it's quiet. I imagine it's over to his left. I have no idea, but somewhere over here, it's quiet. Jesus gets suspicious. He gets up. He goes over to the disciples. And what does he find? His disciples are asleep. And he wakes them up, and he's like, guys, I've been telling you. The time of suffering is coming. The time of temptation and trial is coming. It should not be unexpected for the disciples of what is about to happen. He says, pray. Pray that you will have faith and courage to stand against the temptation. And Jesus goes back over here to pray. And I imagine them all praying. And then all of a sudden, you start to hear some armor rattling. And they start to hear voices, maybe a sword clinking. You see, Judas was leading a detachment of Roman soldiers, an entourage from the high priest's household, Caiaphas's household, Pharisees, as well as other random people, you know how they are, they see something going down and they're like, hey, what's happening? And so there's a whole group of people that are going up this steep incline up the Mount of Olives towards Jesus. And yet the disciples are still caught, not ready for what is about to happen. There's so much irony in this. My friends, if we don't have a plan in place when the temptation or trial comes, when the unexpected happens, we will not be ready to honor Jesus with our lives. And the disciples weren't ready. How we handle the unexpected matters. It matters to our witness and to our testimony. The Roman soldiers come. Now, we know that the disciples had two swords among them. And who do you think had one of them? Peter, absolutely. Peter had his sword because Peter had just told Jesus, I am ready to die for you. And he was. He took out that sword. He raises it and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, whose name is Malchus. He cuts his ear right off. Now, you would think that right then the Roman soldiers would have run him through or put him in shackles. Peter is clearly ready to die for Jesus. But Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. My time has come to be delivered into their hands. He picks up the servant's ear and he heals the servant in that moment. How we handle the unexpected matters. When the Roman soldier sees Jesus, guess what happens? The trial and temptation and the suffering is about to begin. And the disciples, they scatter. 
except for Peter and John. And we pick up the scripture in Luke 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, this is Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Now we know from John's recording that John knew someone in the high priest's household. He may have even known Caiaphas himself. And so John is gains entry into the proceedings that are happening. They're bringing witnesses against Jesus. They're beginning to, to hurt Jesus, to strike him. And John negotiates with the servant girl to get Peter into the courtyard. This begins the undoing, the brokenness of Peter. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, I mean, the words are like a bubble out there. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. The rooster crowed. The Lord turned and he looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine? All that's happening to Jesus. Accusations, he's answering questions. He's beginning to suffer physically for us. And Jesus is tuned into Peter and what he's doing and he looks at Peter. And it was then that Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I cannot imagine what Peter must have felt. I think about Jesus and his exchange with the rich young ruler in Mark. Where it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Even though the rich young ruler would go away sad because he couldn't do what he needed to do to enter the kingdom of God. I imagine Jesus was hurt and he was disappointed. This was someone in his inner circle denying him with an earshot. And yet Jesus looked at him and I believe that Jesus loved him in that moment. There's a statue that stands in the courtyard to sort of commemorate this moment with the rooster sort of mockingly up above. Peter had two choices in this moment where he realizes what he's done. He can be broken and healed or he can be broken and destroyed because there was no doubt about it. Once and for all, Peter had come to the end of himself. And this was exactly where God wanted Peter to be, at the end of himself. You see, there was good news for Peter, and there's good news for us. In the shadow of the cross, our brokenness becomes a pathway to restoration. Our brokenness, whether it's something that you've done or something that's been done to you, in the shadow of the cross becomes our pathway to restoration. Because until we're broken, there isn't room for the Holy Spirit to completely transform us. See, I think that if Peter had not been broken in that moment, 
that when Pentecost came, there wouldn't have actually been enough room in Peter for the Holy Spirit to come in and do what the Holy Spirit was going to do, which was unleash Peter to be the father of the Jewish church, to finally be the rock. But here's the thing. I think we resist brokenness. I think we do it for lots and lots of reasons. Ann Voskamp in The Broken Way says this. She says, the brave let brokenness come. You know, I was a third generation military member. My grandfathers both served a career, my dad served a career, and I served in the United States Army as well. And, and I would say that I was raised with an understanding that the brave cover up brokenness and pick themselves up by their bootstraps and they run another mile. And I think that might resonate for some of you because I don't know that it's just about being in the military. I think that as Americans, our independence, um, home of the free and the brave, I think how we define brave might be a little bit different than how Jesus might define brave. I think in the church, we're uncomfortable with brokenness. And so we do our best to patch ourselves up enough to, to get in here and to see people and to say, how's it going? Oh, it's fine. But we resist brokenness. My friends, it is in the shadow of the cross that our brokenness becomes a pathway to restoration. And as long as we fight our brokenness, we don't really get to, we don't really get to experience restoration and healing. So Peter, we're going to see, is, is restored. He chooses the path of the cross, and he chooses to be willing to receive restoration from Jesus in John 21 after Jesus is resurrected. There's this beautiful interaction between Peter and Jesus. But I want to contrast this with somebody else who was going through exactly the same thing at the same time as Peter, and it's Judas. Okay, so picture this. Peter realizes what he's done, and he is overcome with brokenness. Guess what else? It records in Scripture that Judas came to his senses after betraying Jesus, and he cannot believe what he's done. He throws the silver back. He gives it back. He's disgusted with himself. But Judas, he gives in to a spirit of destruction and despair. We've talked about this before as a church family, how we start bouncing between fear and isolation and being a victim. And we start to struggle in the Ds. And you can see Judas, how he goes, man, I've totally screwed up. There's no hope for me. That's a lie. That's deceit. Peter tells us that the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I believe on that night, Peter writes about that because he knows. Because that lion was circling Peter and it was circling Judas. Seeing who he may destroy. Because guess what? When the enemy destroys us, it's not because he cares about us. It's because he wants to hurt the heart of God. And Satan that night was all about, how can I inflict another wound on Jesus? And he does it through Judas. Because Judas believed what I've done is too terrible. There's no hope. He loses hope. He despairs. He gives in to hor a horribly destructive spirit. And he goes out and he commits suicide, which is the ultimate goal that the enemy would like to see us give in to. 
I believe that there are people in this room, people at our Bettendorf campus and joining us online who are struggling with the same spirit. And I want to speak truth to your heart. Peter goes on just two verses later, 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks about the roaring lion and then he says this, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all ages, who has called you to his glory in Christ, he will himself, Jesus Christ himself, will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. That is the truth. God has plans for you to give you a hope and a future in him. Do not give in to that spirit of destruction or despair. If you're joining us online, and you're struggling with this, would you fill out a connection card and would you let us know so that we can get in touch with you? If you are in this room or at Bettendorf, I encourage you to speak with a pastor afterwards. In our other services, we have seen that this is, the struggle is real, my friends. The enemy wants us to give in to the destruction of not just our souls, but also our physical bodies. So back to Peter, you know, when you're in the Holy Lands and you journey from, you're in Jerusalem, a lot of the tours take you from the upper room and the Last Supper, and then you go down to Caiaphas's house. And as you walk along that road, this is the image that you'll see embedded in the stone wall, no matter which direction you're approaching the house. And you know which house you're going to because there's a very large rooster perched right on top of it. Can you imagine having an image posted everywhere that defines you at your worst moment? And, and for some of you, you don't have to imagine that. You've got something in your life that reminds you every single day of your worst moment. But just like Peter, the Holy Spirit is all about freeing us up from our worst moments and pushing us into our best moments with Jesus. And I believe that once Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit inhabited Peter's life, this was nothing but a thing to Peter. He never looked back at it. He didn't let it define him. You see, Peter's expectations, a lot of them weren't met and some of them were met in crazy ways. He didn't expect to be called out as a disciple of Jesus or to ever leave Galilee. Peter didn't expect to walk on water or perform miracles. He certainly didn't expect to deny Christ or witness the resurrection. He didn't expect Jesus to come and spend time with him to restore him and reinstate him into ministry. He didn't expect to be the first to preach after Pentecost or to be the father of the Jewish church. Peter didn't expect to travel the world. He never expected to even leave Galilee. Peter didn't expect to be crucified at the hands of Nero, who was persecuting the church in Babylon and Rome and the Jewish church in exile all over the world. You know, Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as Christ. Peter didn't expect these things, but he was open to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And I wonder for us where our expectations might be limiting what the Spirit wants to do in your life and in my life. First and second Peter were written 
sort of right at the end of Peter's life. He's in Babylon, and then he's in Rome. He's going to be imprisoned and tortured for nine months, and then he's going to be crucified. And these two letters are all about pointing the church to Christ, the church to Christ's love, and how we ought to embody that love. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 22 through 22, we're going to look at it in the message, which is a thought-for-thought translation, and we're doing that because sometimes we read words in Scripture and they're so familiar, we just gloss right over them. So let's hear these words with fresh eyes and fresh ears. This is Peter. My friends, your life is a journey that you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It costs God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished sacrificial lamb, and this was no afterthought. Even though it is only lately, at the end of the ages, become public knowledge, God always knew that he was going to do this for you. It's because of this sacrifice Messiah whom God then raised from the dead and glorified that you trust God, that you know you have a future in God. My friends, if you have not experienced the saving work of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in your own life, let today be the day. If you've never talked to God before, There's a prayer in your note guide that you can pray and start that conversation and start that relationship with God who was willing to sacrifice his son. His son who was willing to be obedient to death on a cross because he loved us. Peter goes on to say, now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your lives depended on it. And you see, at that time that Peter was writing, literally, the lives of believers depended on each other. That is so hard for us to fathom. We live in such comfort and security. Can you imagine living in a time where your life depended on the person to the right and to the left of you? You know, I woke up this morning to news that um, there were several churches in Egypt that were bombed as they celebrated Palm Sunday. Do you think those believers maybe have a little bit different perspective on what loving each other as though their lives depended on it might mean? Peter is calling us to radical love, like love that is not how we typically think about it. You see, our radical love for God should allow us to love others radically. I mean, Jesus was all in on his love for us. And we are called as followers of Christ to model that same love to the world around us. And not like the world in this nebulous, like, the world, but I mean like the people in your house and the people that you work with and the people that you rub shoulders with and the people that you see every weekend who just say it's fine coming and going. Our love for God should allow us to love others radically. You see, Jesus sacrificed and risked all on Judas, on Peter, on you, on me, in spite of the reality that we would betray him, we would deny him, we would hurt his heart, that we would refuse to obey him. Jesus risked his heart and gave his life so that we would know love and out of that love have the courage to go be love. Here's the thing, though. 
I know I struggle with this. If I'm gonna love radically and be all in, and I don't know if you get this about me, but like, I am an all in person. Like, it's not even 100%. It's like 110% or zero. That's just kinda how I'm wired. But when it comes to love, honestly, I really want some sort of guarantee that on the other side of me expressing that all in kind of love, that I'm not gonna get too hurt in the process. That it's gonna work out okay for me. But you see, Jesus didn't have those guarantees. Why would I be looking for him? And, and yet I do. And I struggle with that. John talks about it this way in 1 John 4, 18 and 19. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, which perfect love, we get to experience that because we have been loved perfectly by our Father. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. We struggle in the space between fear and love. Love requires risking. It requires us being willing to experience brokenness. And in that brokenness, falling on Jesus, as we talked about a few weeks ago, because it is in the shadow of the cross that brokenness becomes a pathway to restoration. Here's the so what out of this. It's two questions, and here's the first one. What would you die for? Peter, I believe, was willing to die for Christ. He demonstrated that when he drew his sword in front of a detachment of Roman soldiers. It wasn't in the dying that Peter struggled, it was in the living. Now, this is a big question. What would you die for? And it's kind of like a once-for-all decision. And, and it's not one that we often have to kind of think about. Most of us live lives that aren't in a, in a state where we're encountering death. But some of us have lived in professions that require us to settle this once and for all. If you're in law enforcement, if you're a firefighter, if you are in a situation in your work where you routinely risk your life for other people, you know that you have to settle this because you don't have time in the moment to go, well, let's see, what would I die for? Am I willing to die? No, you gotta settle it because it's in a nanosecond that you've gotta be able to risk your life. I had the for good fortune and opportunity to serve in the United States military. I was in the army an officer in the military, and I got to settle this question. You know, leading up to my commissioning, you go through a lot of training, and the military is all about getting you to wrestle with this and settle it. And guess what? If you can't settle it, you shouldn't serve because you're not going to be very good at your job. You've got to have some sort of peace with this. And so I remember my junior year going through our basic training, and we were in a series of exercises that were all about this question. And I remember coming to a point where I knew, yep, I would die. I would die in this moment. I would die for my country. But here's the secret about being a soldier. Yes, it's about your country, and it's about some of those more lofty things, but in the moment, it's really about the person on your right and your left. And so I settled this my junior year of high school, and it was a good thing because when I got commissioned 
and I took command of my first platoon in 1993. I walked into Fort Riley, into the 1st Infantry Division, into a company full of men, and my platoon was 41 men who still had sand in their boots from Desert Storm. And there I was, signing, taking responsibility for over a million dollars worth of equipment and the lives and welfare of 41 soldiers, and not just them, but also their families. And you can bet this question was at the top of their list in checking out their new lieutenant. And fortunately, it didn't take long for them to understand that I'd already settled that. And I knew what I would die for. You see, we answer that in this more lofty, once-for-all kind of, kind of space. And I think, but here's the harder question, and it's this. What will you live for? We answer this question with a thousand yeses and nos that we will say in our lifetime. It's in the arc of sacrifice that you're willing to engage in that you will answer this question of what will you live for? If you won't die to yourself, you'll never live for all that God has for you. You'll never step into all that he wants for you. And maybe even more than what will you live for, it's how will you live. Will you live hopefully and expectantly and courageously? Will you live to love radically, to rescue without regard for your own comfort and safety? Will you love those who might harm you? Will you love radically? Here's what I know to be true, my friends. We cannot do this on our own strength. It is only through the power that raised Christ from the dead that we can love others as though our life depended on it. We need his strength. We need the power of the resurrection to be at work within us so that we can love like Jesus loved. Let me pray for us that God would do that for us by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. God, you are love. Thank you for your words that perfect love drives out fear. Father, by the power of your spirit, would you remove fear from our lives so that we can step into and model the love that you have for the world. Father, would you help us to die to ourselves? Would you help us to get out of the way? Would you help us to embrace our own brokenness and let it go, just let it fall apart so that there's room for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and totally transform us and make us new. Father, as we continue to march to the cross, thank you. That it is in the shadow of the cross our brokenness finds restoration. You are the God of redemption. You are the God of restoration. You are the God of hope and healing and wholeness. And we proclaim that as truth and embrace it. Give us courage and strength to live into the fullness of that. In the strong, strong name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.